In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells one of the most perplexing parables in the entire New Testament to me. And uh, this is the parable Jesus says, and it goes like this. There was once a, a, a owner and who had a manager. And, uh, and this wealthy individual had a servant who was a manager, and he managed his entire business. And it came to the business owner's attention that the manager was mishandling money. There were under-the-table deals going on. There was, he was siphoning things off the top uh, or off the bottom, either way. There, there was a lot of stuff that was going on that was not moral or ethical. And the owner of the business came to the man and said, You've got like 24 hours to put your affairs in order, and you are fired. And so this guy went, Oh, well, what am I going to do? I'm too proud to work hard. I don't want to go like get a real job. So he says, what am I going to do? I, I tell you what, I, so he takes this time that the, the own, business owners allotted to him. And he, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Um, since I'm still working here, I have some authority. So he starts calling in all the people who owe debts to his master, to the, to the business owner. And he said, you, you owe, you know, pay 80% of your bill and we'll call it good. Pay 50% of your bill and we'll call it good. And so he starts doing with this with all the, the business owner's debts he start, that, that, that people who owe him money. And he starts just cutting their bills. And, uh, and the business owner finds out about this. And he commends him. He's, he says, you were, it was a good thing. It was wise what you did. And the reason for it, because the guy said, hey, I'm going to use this and build favors so that when I don't have a job, someone will take care of me. Because they owe me. And the, the owner commended him. And it just, that always just struck me as odd or funny. And Jesus says, be shrewd about how you use the world's resources to impact the kingdom of God. That's, that, I've always kind of wondered, okay, I get it. So he's not, Jesus is not so much affirming the dishonesty of the person, but rather the shrewdness of him. Okay, I get that. What does that look like? What does that look like for you and I? I think Acts chapter 23 is a great launching point for us to see what it looks like for Christians to be shrewd. Now, this shrewd is a this shrewd is an interesting word. It kind of has a negative connotation. Uh, but if you look it up in the dictionary, uh, this parable of the shrewd manager, the the definition, the English definition of the word shrewd simply means having or showing sharp powers of judgment. In fact, in the original language uh, uh, that the Bible is written in, this word shrewd kind of actually has a, a connotation of wise. In fact, some translations call this manager not a shrewd manager, but a wise manager. There's an aspect of this idea of shrewd, of being cunning. Wisdom and cunning put together gives a shrewd. Jesus says, I want my followers to be shrewd in how they live and work in this world. And what we're going to see today is the Apostle Paul living out Jesus' command to be shrewd. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says these words, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, which is crazy, by the way. No one would send sheep out to wolves, but Jesus does. I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And we understand the innocent as doves piece, like, yeah, I want to be innocent like a dove. That's great. But how, I mean, who wants to be a snake? You know, 
Like, Kevin, you're a snake. I mean, you know, no one wants to be described as a snake. I'm not saying that, Kevin. Sorry, you're just right there. Uh, it's dangerous to sit anywhere in the first two rows, so I had to go to the third row. Anyway, uh, so shrewd is this idea. Jesus wants his followers to be shrewd, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And this is part of what happens. Jesus says, I'm sending you out in Matthew 10 to be shrewd and innocent. I'm sending you out. At Waukee Community Church, we are continually reminding you that the church is to be a church that's gathered and scattered. We are to be a church that's gathered and scattered. Here's what this means. Um, Gathered means we gather together and we invite people into this. If you're new here today, if you've never been here before, you're welcome here. We love that you're gathering with us and we, we just think that's fantastic. And this is an important part. But sometimes the church forgets that our job is also to be scattered. We leave here and we take our faith in Jesus wherever we go to have influence. And that's why Pastor Jeff uh, interviewed Pete and Megan today just to go, how do we be the church scattered? How do we do this? And there's a couple examples there that maybe you can grab a hold of. As you scatter into the world, Jesus says, not only do I want you to gather and scatter, but as you scatter, Jesus says, I'm sending you out, so be shrewd in how you live for the kingdom of God. And this is a, today's ex- passage is a great example of this. So just to bring you up to speed, to remind you where we've been, we're in Acts chapter 23. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the last chapter, pretty much the last half of the book of Acts is about the Apostle Paul. He's gone through three missionary journeys all over the world. Now he's coming to the end. He's returned to Jerusalem. And once he got to Jerusalem, some crazy things happened. He had returned to Jerusalem. The Jews freaked out on Paul. They grabbed him. They were about to beat him to death. And a Roman commander saw this and rescued him. He found out that Paul was a Roman citizen And in an effort to figure out what's going on, the Roman commander said, okay, I've got all this unrest in the city about this Apostle Paul. I don't understand what's going on. Let's convene the Jewish Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders. We'll get them all together. So he sort of forces them together. And he says, "Uh, I'm going to put this guy, Paul, I'm giving him to you. Explain to me what is going on. I want to find out. So he releases Paul to them. And Paul stands before his accusers now. And what we're going to see Paul do is be really shrewd in how he handles these accusers. Because as we scatter into the world, we have to be shrewd in how we live for the kingdom of God. Innocent as doves, shrewd as snakes. Paul's a living example of this. And as we scatter into the world, what we're going to see is five different things today that I think the text just screams at us that we can learn about being shrewd in how we live for the kingdom of God. And the first thing that we can talk about today in being shrewd is being consistent. Some of these five things, you, you'll think at first hand they won't go along with being shrewd. But I hope you see as we work through with Paul, how Paul uses these aspects to be shrewd. So first of all, we live shrewdly by being consistent. Paul stands before the whole Jewish council and he says, Listen, I've lived my whole life as a Jew in good standing before God. Paul says, I've listened to God. By following his lead, you can accuse me of not doing so, but I promise you I am blameless to those charges. I have been obedient to God, and I have been consistent in this obedience. Now, this immediately garners the high priest's reaction, because he doesn't like Paul at all. And he doesn't think Paul's been consistent at all. And so he turns to him, and he smacks him on the mouth. 
Now, this is a very Jewish thing to do. Uh, you might get sued if you do this today, but uh, back in that day, it was a way of saying, I'm going to smack you in the mouth because the words that just came out of your mouth were hypocritical and, and you're lying and you're blaspheming against God. So since your, wor- your mouth uttered those words, I'm going to strike you on the mouth. Now, needless to say, Paul doesn't really like that. <laughs> which I'm not sure anyone that would enjoy that, but he doesn't. And so he turns to this guy and he says, you hypocrite, you say I haven't obeyed God. You say I haven't obeyed the law. You're the one who just struck me on the mouth without even a conviction in the eyes of the Jewish law. You see, he should have never struck Paul in the mouth without a conviction, a guilty verdict in the eyes of the Jewish law. And so Paul's saying, that is the violation of the law. You accuse me of violating the law? You're the one who just violated it by striking me. You're the ones who's a liar. I've obeyed the law of God and the voice of God. There's a principle here. If Paul is showing us as we scatter in the world, if we're going to be shrewd, we can, best this, we can best accomplish this if we are consistent and blameless. I mean, who can be really this blameless and consistent? I'm not perfect, are you? This isn't about perfection, right? It's not about being perfect. The gospel would remind us, the gospel would remind us that Jesus came and he died in our place. So when Jesus died, he became blameless for us. He became consistently perfect for us. He did what we couldn't do and then we get to apply his perfection to us. This is the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That Jesus did this and he rose from the dead. God sent us his spirit. All this is in the message of the gospel, this consistent message of the gospel. Jesus is who is perfect for us. As a result of his perfection being applied to us then, it is a call upon us to live consistently. And that's how we can live shrewdly in this world, is simply by being consistent. It's easy. If we're going to to shrewdly do the work of the kingdom of God, we have to be consistent. We have to consistently live according to the teachings of Jesus. Listen, if you say you follow Jesus, but you are the office gossip, like all the gossip of the entire office runs through you, if that is you, that is not consistent with the gospel. If you say you follow Jesus, but you've adopted the morals of this world, stop it. It's not consistent. If you say you follow Jesus, but you use his precious name in vain, I mean, you're hypocritical. Stop it. Be consistent. You want to be, live as a shrewd follower of Jesus? Be consistent. Too many Christians aren't consistent. It's really, really hard to be consistent. It's just hard. Um, so uh, in January, I started my fitness pal. And it's a track what you eat program on your phone, you know. And uh, by uh, February like the third week of February with everyone else, I stopped it. And uh, of course, my daughter, Anna, who is uh, in seventh grade, and uh, uh, she's conscious about these sort of things, realized that this is not a good thing for me. And so she tells me, she says, Dad, when are you going to start my fitness pal again? Dad, when are you going to start my fitness pal again? She keeps saying, finally, I got so tired of her. I said, fine, Anna, I'll start tomorrow. Quit harassing me. And uh, so two days later, did you start my fitness pal? No. You know, no. And we were just talking about being men and women who keep our word as followers of Jesus. And I just sort of hung my head. And so the next day, Anna, oh, she's down in the nursery. Anna, I've started my fitness pal again, you know, because I want to be consistent that my word is what I say. 
As Christians, we can do this. You want to be shrewd in this world? It means gaining a standing as someone who's consistent in the way we live. As we scatter in this world, we can be shrewd with how we live for the kingdom of God. We can't be shrewd if we're not consistent. Paul is saying, I've consistently obeyed the God of the Jews. I did what he told me to do. There's a second thing that Paul shows us here as he's shrewd for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. The first one is consistency. The second one is humility. Paul shows a great humility here. Uh, Look, the story continues. Uh, Look what happens here. Those who were standing near Paul, verse 4 says, you dared to insult God's high priest? Now, okay, Paul understands that the law says this. The law says that you should respect your leaders The law says clearly that you should not, you should refrain from blaspheming God. Exodus 22 very clearly says this. Refrain from blaspheming God and from cursing the ruler of the people. And so Paul knows this. But you have to remember the the, uh, Roman commander assembled the the Jewish Sanhedrin rather quickly. And the high priest probably didn't have time to get all dressed up in his high priestly garb. So he's probably just there looking like, any other person. And he's standing there, and Paul didn't understand that the guy who struck him on the mouth was the high priest. So what does Paul do? In humility, he just says, in ignorance, I didn't know what I just did. I mean, he basically agrees with him, I shouldn't have done that. I should not have cursed the ruler of God's people. We who would follow Jesus would do well to heed that second instruction, just like Paul. If we want to be humble, we first of all have to admit when we're wrong. That's really important. It is a shrewd thing in this world to live humbly. By the way, as Christians, we would do well to, to, to follow that second command in Exodus 22 to refrain from cursing the ruler of our people. I know of too many Christians that really don't like our current president. Just, they don't like him. And I hear too many Christians that are cursing publicly degrading our current president. Uh, Whether you like it or not, you know what happens when you do that? The result of that is you lose influence with people who need to know about Jesus. Because the reality is there's somebody out there who has been helped by this president, who is really grateful to this president. Why would you want to alienate that person? It's not shrewd. It's not humble. I love what Paul does here. He just stops and goes, whoa, If I want to be consistent, i got to be honest. I'm trying to consistently live what the Bible tells me to live, and I should never have cursed the ruler. I didn't know this was the ruler. Paul is all out apologizing in humility. I remember one time years ago in a different neighborhood, different place we lived, I had to apologize to a neighbor. And I remember walking over to that neighbor, and I apologized to him for something that had happened. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened. Uh, he, th- this guy thought I was the, I, he didn't even know what to do with it. Like, wait, wait, you, wait, nobody apologizes. Like, who says, I'm sorry anymore? He didn't even know what to do with it. And then what was really interesting is the posturing began. Because I had apologized, he thought, oh yeah, well, I'm going to get bigger then. And I'm going to tell you all the ways that you should, you know, really feel bad about what you've done. You know? And I mean, because the world doesn't even know what to do with an apology. As Christians, if we're to live shrewdly in the world, we've got to live humbly. I love that Paul does this here. He lives humbly. He just says, I didn't know. 
And I want to be consistent to the law, and I would not have done that. Brothers, I didn't realize that it was the high priest. For it is written, don't speak evil about the ruler of your people. Humble. There's a third thing we see here, and this really gets to the heart of shrewdness. If there was a central point today, it would be this one. There is an intelligence about living shrewdly. Living as a follower of Jesus means that we live and think intelligently as Christians. So at this point in the story, Paul's standing before the whole Sanhedrin, all the Jewish rulers, they're trying to get to the bottom of it, and Paul realizes this. Listen, no matter what I do, they've already decided that I should be punished. So they don't buy this whole Jesus thing, and they think that he's defiled, Paul has defiled the temple. And besides, this whole Jesus thing is, is picking up steam, and these Jewish leaders don't want this. And he realizes, no matter what I do, I'm toast. So what does Paul do? I mean, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's not going to deny Jesus. He can't do that. They would love for nothing more than that. He can't do that on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, there is an entire Jewish council that is united against him. So what does he do? Paul's so shrewd here. He divides his enemy. He turns them on each other. Because Paul understands the culture of where he's at and exactly what to do. In the Jewish Sanhedrin, there were two main factions of people. There, there was a lot of different factions. We're really familiar with the Pharisees because when we talk about Jesus, Jesus seemed to butt heads with the Pharisees all the time. And in the Gospels, the Pharisees sort of are, it seems like they're the ones that are really torqued at Jesus. But in, in Acts, we see the, another group called the Sadducees kind of come to the forefront. And I don't know whether it was a, a sort of political shifting and the Sadducees kind of became more prominent, but here's the main difference between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees says there's no resurrection. They're just like, you're dead, you're done. There's no angels, there's no demons, there's none of that. You know, maybe it's like we're all too enlightened for this stuff, and so none of that exists. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in it all. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. And so what does Paul do with this united front that is against him? He, Paul is so shrewd here because Paul was a Pharisee. He did believe in the resurrection. And as a Christian, he believed that Jesus was raised. So here, immediately, what Paul does is he turns his enemy on each other. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are ticketed like for this huge debate and they're, they're torqued at each other and they're ready to just l- l- let loose on each other. And so Paul says, I can either leave them united against me or I can bring up a very controversial subject that will turn them against each other. And he does it. He talks about his commitment to the resurrection and the Sadducees say, whoa, we hate the resurrection. But the Pharisees go, whoa, wait a minute. If this is about resurrection and angels and demons, we may not like all Paul's Jesus stuff, but we certainly agree with him on this point. And all of a sudden we see Paul's enemies who are united against him just turn on each other. And so a huge fight breaks out and the Roman commander says, fine, this is worthless. I'm getting Paul out of here. I I want you to see two things about being intelligent. First of all, Paul is intelligent about the word of God. Look at verse 6, the second half. He says, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul understands the word of God. 
He is intelligent about this. He understands that the, the prophecies of the Messiah, the understanding of Jesus, that he must die as the Messiah and rise from the dead, he gets it. Paul is so intelligent about this word of God. And he's also intelligent about the culture in which he lives. The first half of verse 6. Paul, knowing then some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee. Paul understood the culture in which he lived. If you want to be intelligent, shrewd as a Christian, you need to understand these simple two things. you got to know and love the Word of God. We are, I, I tell you this often, we are not shy about opening up this word here and preaching and teaching from the word of God because this is the life transformative text. And we have to, as Christians, be intelligent about this. We also have to be intelligent about a culture we live in. It, to be shrewd as we scatter in this world, we have to be intelligent. Too many Christians are just dumb about the Bible. They go, you know, the Bible is for the pastors and spiritual people to understand. I don't get it. They'll read it and they'll explain it to me. And too many Christians have just sort of given up on their love of the Word of God. But we can't. To be shrewd in this world, we've got to know the Word of God, just like Paul knows it. But the second piece of this is we've got to be shrewd and understand our culture. We cannot be ignorant about the world in which we live. Paul leveraged the controversial topic of the day for the freedom of the gospel. Many of us have never even thought like that. How can I leverage the controversial topic of the day for the gospel? Most of us don't even know that we're not aware of the culture. We've just assimilated the culture. Most of us are like, um, I love it when my kids get a blue sucker, right? Like blue suckers are hilarious. They chew on that blue sucker. They're happy. They have no idea that their entire mouth is blue, their teeth are blue, and their tongue is blue, right? They're just walking around smiling with this all blue stuff, having no idea that they've assimilated the blue of the sucker, most Christians are like that. We're walking around. We have no idea that we've assimilated our culture because we're not even aware of it. Oh, Paul gets it. Paul is intelligent, and he's so shrewd here. Know the culture. Leverage it. Okay, at, at the beginning of the last millennium, in the early 2000s, uh, here's an example of being intelligent about the gospel, okay? Um, I, I, as a baseball fan, loved baseball. I lived in Chicago when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were doing the home run thing. And it was, every day you'd look at the news and see who hit a home run and where are they at. It was so exciting to be part of that. We were all like, this is amazing. We haven't seen the home run record broken forever. And now these two guys are doing it at the same time. This is incredible. And then we found out everyone was cheating, you know. And like the whole steroid thing came out. And people were so mad. Do you remember that? How angry people were. They, were so, they felt like they'd been betrayed because these guys all over the place were juicing up with steroids and cheating. And they get so mad. But at the same time, they didn't think about the inconsistency in their feelings of anger towards baseball and their questions about morality in general. Most people, even then, were starting to say, even 10, 15 years ago, were starting to say, well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. There were, most of them were already saying, well, you know, that's, that's true for you, great. I'm going to do what's important for me. Well, if that's true, 
then juice it up, you know? Cheat all you want because the, the reality is you can do all the steroids you want to be the best baseball hitter because that's true for you. And in an intelligent Christian who wanted to say no, there is a God out there who loves us and who has guided us in simple principles of morality outside of ourselves. A, an intelligent Christian just had to make a few comments and you could strike up a conversation about a simple concept of a God of morals, a God who guides us, a God who loves us, a God who became one of us. It didn't take much to just highlight the inconsistency. Uh, that's shrewd living. It's just, it's just living shrewd. It's just looking around you and go, as a Christian, I'm going to be intelligent about the culture I live in. So as I go, I know. Just like Paul said, <laughs> Pharisees and Sadducees, I know the way out because I understand my culture. We need to understand our culture, not assimilate it like a blue sucker, but understand it. How can you use the events of today to shrewdly point people to Jesus and not alienate them? Paul knew the Bible and the culture, and he shrewdly used the events of his day to open up an opportunity for his life and a message of the gospel. Intelligence. You want to live shrewdly? You got to be consistent, humble, intelligent. And here's a fourth thing we see in the text then, is confident in God's provision. To live shrewdly, we have to be confident in the fact that God is building his kingdom and we can join that work. His sovereign hand is moving and we scatter, as we scatter shrewdly into this world, we have to trust the sovereign hand of God. Okay, so take, take note of what happens here. Verse 11. So, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going at it. The commander goes, okay, this is not cool because Paul's going to get killed here. This was a bad idea. And the commander pulls him out, throws him in prison or in the barracks for his own safety at this point. And Paul's sitting there in the barracks. In verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I don't know if you remember, over the last three or four weeks, we've been highlighting that one of Paul's convictions was that he would have to suffer to the extent that Jesus did. And another personal conviction he had was that he would have to take the gospel to Rome. He wanted it. He wanted so badly to go to Rome. And in the midst of sitting in prison, having lived shrewdly for the kingdom of God, intelligently, humbly, consistently lived like this, now God, I love how God's hand of providence just speaks to Paul and says, by the way, I'm putting all this together in a way that's good for the kingdom and good for my glory. It would take four years for this to happen. Four years from Paul to get from this word to the time he gets to Rome. Paul's in jail for most of that. Paul's in his late 50s or early 60s at this point. I mean, it, you know, some of you are that old today, and that's not old, but in Paul's day, that was old, okay? I mean, he's this old guy, and he's wondering, how many days do I have left in this world? And he spends four years in jail. But regardless, he has had a word from the Lord and he is trusting in the providence of God. Even in jail, he's patient and encouraged by God's providence. So having six kids has afforded me uh, a lot of opportunities to explore the concept of trust. And one of my favorite phases uh, is when kids are little and they can jump to you. And so one of my kids are always about two, three, four years old. Uh, I put them up on the counter, kitchen counter, and you know, and they'd laugh and smile at me, and I'd take a step back, and I'd say, jump. <laughs> Come jump to me, I'll catch you. And it's been so fun to see how every kid has handled that differently. 
You know, I mean, I've got a couple of my kids that like that would just jump right to me knowing that I would catch them no problem. I've had some kids that would take, stand back and get a running start, you know, like, let's go or tell me, get back farther, daddy. And just no doubt in their mind that I would catch them. I had other kids that would just stand there in terror and go, come closer, <laughs> you know, come closer to me. Uh, it's just been so fascinating to see over the years how every kid kind of handled that situation differently. And, and it just reminds me, I, I think, uh, we're just like that with God, aren't we? Like, sometimes we're just like the kid who goes, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Come a little closer, God, and then I'll trust you. I love what Paul does here. He's living shrewdly for the kingdom as he scatters into, into the world for the good news of Jesus. And, and he's just confident in the sovereign hand of God. Now watch how this sovereign hand of God moves. Okay, so it, the news gets worse. The Jews are really ticked. So 40 guys get together. Paul's in the, in the barracks and protected. And these 40 Jews who really hate Paul and really hate Jesus and really hate the gospel, they get together and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're taking a vow not to eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. And we are going to go after him. Uh, this is a serious vow. Like, they really want Paul dead. And what I love here is, uh, is they come up with this plot. They say, okay, what we need to do is we need to tell the Roman commander that we need to bring Paul out again so we can get more information about him, right? You know, more information. And when they bring him out, we'll jump him and kill him. And so they're plotting this. And who overhears this? But Paul's nephew overhears this. <laughs> what a coincidence, huh? He's there and he overhears this. Now, first of all, I, I read this and I'm a little bit of a genealogy nut, so I think Paul had a nephew? Well, that's cool. Like he, he had a, you know, it says that this was the son of, a sis, of Paul's sister, so Paul had a sister. How many other siblings did Paul have? Like I start to freak out a little bit, you know? I, oh, what, what did they, where were his parents? Did they live in Jerusalem? What did these people think? What about Paul's family? Luke doesn't give a squat. It's so frustrating sometimes. I'm like, Luke, come on, give me more. But he doesn't. We don't know anything about it, but we know Paul's nephew was there in Jerusalem. He overhears this plot, and he goes to Paul, and he says, hey, Paul, just here's what I overheard. And Paul says, hey, take this guy right now to the, the Roman commander, and, uh, and, and he has something to tell him. So the nephew goes to the commander, and the commander tells him. And the commander says to him, okay, don't tell anyone that you told me this. The commander realizes that Paul's life is in danger. So he puts together all of these troops. Uh, like, like it's crazy, 470 Roman troops to, to take Paul out. What are the chances that Paul's nephew would be just in the right place at just the right time to overhear that? Well, what are the chances? Like, what I love about God is um, God is the God whose hand is just moving. And we can trust in his good provision for us. He puts the right people in the right places at the right times, doesn't he? I mean, he's good. It's God's hand of providence. The Archbishop William Temple said this, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, the coincidences stop happening. Uh, I, I think there's a reminder here of God's sovereign hand moving. As we scatter into this world, we have to be shrewd about how we live for the kingdom of God, consistently, humbly, intelligently, and confidently. And then the last thing is blamelessly. 
really this just cycles right back around to the first point because consistently blameless are tied together. This Roman commander then, with news of this plot, sends 470 Roman troops. I love how God's not shy with his resources here. 470 troops to take Paul up to Caesarea, which is uh, a, a good journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the coast, and you hear the name Caesar in the word Caesarea. This was a Roman outpost there, and uh, it was an important Roman outpost. And the last thing Luke wants to highlight for us as he talks about this is that as Paul lands in the court of a guy by the name of Felix, um, this Roman higher-up commander by the name of Felix, as, as he's waiting to be tried before Felix, God wants to highlight, or Luke wants to highlight a couple things for us. That as Paul has lived shrewdly, he's done all these things, but he's been blameless. Watch the comparison here that Luke highlights for us. The first, com- the, the first comparison is in the Roman commander himself. If you would look at chapter 23, verse 27, Paul gets transferred up to Caesarea, and, and the Roman commander writes a letter to Felix. He says, To His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. Okay, this is just not true. This is not true. Luke has already highlighted to us that this guy arrested Paul without having any idea that he was a Roman citizen, right? But of course, you know, the the Roman commander doesn't want to let that little detail out, that he arrested a Roman citizen without even knowing he was a Roman citizen. In fact, he was about to beat him, and Paul reminded the guy, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't beat me. Uh, The Roman commander, just like anyone else, he rearranges the details. He stretches it out. Paul has been honest, and that can't be said for the commander. The second comparison of Paul is the Jewish rulers. These guys are below board. They're sneaking and conniving. They're just honest. They only care about their, only, their own interests. Paul has repeatedly put the gospel and the kingdom above his own interests. So we see Paul blameless compared to the Roman commander, compared to the Jewish rulers, and then compared to the hungry men. We for, kind of forget about it, but there were 40 guys who took a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was dead, and Paul has been securely rescued and sent up to Caesarea. What are these guys going to do? Because Paul is under lock, I mean, he's under lock and key. No one is going to kill Paul. They took a vow not to eat or drink. I don't know how long you can go without drinking or eating. Uh, Probably not all that long. At some point, either they died. Probably not. They probably went back to their priest and said, hey, could you find a legal technicality to let us out this? Because I'm really hungry and I'd like to eat. Or they just said, well, we made a vow, but who cares? Uh, you know, look, all of a sudden, Luke is comparing uh, these, all these people to Paul and saying what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to live shrewdly is to live blamelessly. Because holiness matters. In this world of relativism, will we give in? Holiness and blamelessness matter. It does. This isn't about our country or what laws should be passed. It's about you. The world is watching and comparing. We can be shrewd with the world by pursuing holiness because holiness matters. It's no wonder that the church is more interested in their leaders putting on a great show and telling people about Jesus because then Christians don't actually have to live like Jesus. We At Waukee Community Church, we talk about Live, love, give. Holiness matters. 
It's part of shrewd living. If we're going to scatter into the world and shrewdly impact the world for the kingdom of God, we have to live like Jesus, and that means pursuing blamelessness. Consistent, humble, intelligent, confident, and blameless. That's what it means to live shrewdly. We're going to come and sing here in a second, but I want to close with this story because as I was thinking about living shrewdly, I was reminded about my garage. Uh, Every winter, we live two houses down from a cornfield, and every winter, my garage seems to get filled with mice. Uh, As as the, the corn comes out of the field, the field mice have nowhere to go, and they find a nice warm spot in my garage. And, uh, and you know, I, I really don't like the mice in my garage, to be honest. And so you turn on the light, or you step out in the garage, and invariably mice will be running around. And it just drives me crazy. And one winter, I set traps, and, and, uh, and I tried to find these mice. And all winter long, I was battling these mice. And I didn't know, I was trying to find their nest. I couldn't find the, the nest of these mice. Finally, the next spring came. I battled them all winter long. The next spring came, and I started doing my garage clean out, you know, where I'd take everything out and, and, uh, and throw away a lot, hopefully. And, and I found in there, I had a, um, a, one of those, like, 10-gallon totes, you know, with, that the lid was off of it. And I looked inside there, and I picked up the thing on top, and underneath it was this mice this nest where all the mice had been hanging out. And there's mouse poop everywhere. And, and I started to look at what they made their nest out of. You know what they made their nest out of? My stuff. Like they used, like, uh, we had a blanket there. They shredded it and pulled out all the stuffing. Like they found just fall decorations that had been in the garage. They pulled those apart. And they made their nest out of my stuff. I was so torqued because they scattered into my garage and they used my resources for their own purpose. You may not want to be called a mouse, but as we're going to live shrewdly as the kingdom of God, this is what we do. We scatter into the world around us and we use the resources of this world intelligently. We do it consistently, humbly, intelligently. We're trusting in God's provision. And we're being blameless. And we're using the resources of this world to advance the kingdom of God. So that every day, in every way, where you go, God goes with you. That's what it means to be a shrewd follower of Jesus. Let's pray. God, would you give us the wisdom to go and scatter into this world in a way that declares your kingship? Would you give us the wisdom and the shrewdness to know how to use the resources of this world to be part of what you're doing in your kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.